Okay, everybody. We're going to go ahead and pray and get going here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have brought us together again today, given us a place to be, given us one another, and given us love for you and love for each other. Thank you for your word again. Help us, please, Lord, to understand and to live out of it and to trust you and to love you, to honor you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is the last week of this uh, series. Next week, we're going to be um, beginning uh, to look at 1 Timothy, all right? Some of us will be teaching that together, so that's where things are. Um, So, today, how does a believer find joy in the midst of trials, suffering, and pain? All right, how does a believer find joy in the midst of trial, suffering, and pain? So let's think about this. We as a church understand the reality of suffering, I would say. We understand the reality of it. Uh, Suffering is a fact of life in this fallen sinful world. We don't want to pretend that it's not. We don't want to pretend that if you're suffering, that means you're not a Christian right? Uh, God doesn't promise to take away suffering from Christians. He doesn't promise that once you have faith, everything goes great and all the pain goes away and, every, and life gets easy and you get rich and everything gets, you know, no. That we, we understand because we've been, been taught well about this for years and years that that is not the way, that's not reality, all right? So we understand the reality of suffering. Think about the different potential sources of suffering that um, every, people in this room have all of these, or have all of, how can I say this? These are all represented in, our, in this room right now. Um, suffering from physical illness or injury or handicap, right? Physical suffering is real. And just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you, know, you, you pray with enough faith and automatically God takes away your suffering, your pain. Um, suffering from being sinned against, right? Suffering from being sinned against, being abused, being betrayed, attacked, abandoned, molested, neglected, fill in the blank. Right? Lied about. Uh, Suffering from being persecuted for your faith. Everything from being alienated from your friends and your family, to losing your ability to support yourself and your family financially, to being arrested, beaten, or killed. None of us have been arrested, beaten, or killed yet. But scripture tells us that's not weird. Right? That's not weird. What's weird is not being arrested, beaten, and killed. Okay. But there is persecution. Suffering from broken relationships, for whatever reason. Suffering from having children who do not honor the Lord. Right? I've known that suffering, and it's, that's one of the hardest things. 
suffering from the effects of your own, your own past and present sins, not just being sinned against, but your sins. Our sins bring suffering to us. Yes? Yeah. Um, even after we repent of those sins, they continue to bring some kinds of suffering. So the list goes on and on. Job 5, 7 says, for man is born of trouble as sparks fly upward. You ever had a bonfire and the sparks fly upward? That's just the nature of things, right? That's what he's saying. Man is born, born for trouble just as surely as when you light a big fire, the sparks go up. Where else are they gonna go? This is how it works. This is, this is the world we live in, this is us. These are the consequences of being sinners and living in a, wall, in, in a world that's fallen and all of that stuff. So, my point is, we understand the reality of suffering. We try to. But we don't only understand the reality of suffering, we also understand the fruitfulness of suffering. All right, you can understand the reality of suffering and become cynical, bitter, and have a pity party and, and despairing, but, but that's not what God tells us. We can understand the reality of suffering and understand the fruitfulness of it, the goodness of it. In other words, we've been well taught about the way God designs and uses suffering in our lives for our good. God does, in fact, use suffering in our lives for our good. But there's always the danger of steering out of one ditch, flying across the road and landing in the other ditch. <laughs> you know, overcorrecting. Um, this is very easy to do, it's very understandable. When the whole world is saying one thing, what do we wanna do? We wanna get as far away from that as we can. You understand? The whole world is saying one thing, and we're like, no, no, that's wrong. And so we jump the car out of the ditch, careen across the road and land in the other ditch. But the problem is what? Still in a ditch. Think about the question we looked at a few weeks ago. This is an example of this. How can I enjoy the world without being worldly? Remember that? So we need to answer that question. Why, do, why is that a question we need to answer? Well, we need to answer that question because we live in a decadent, perverse, materialistic, hedonistic age where pleasure is everything. If you don't have pleasure, kill yourself. Seriously, what's the point of living? There's no pleasure anywhere else. You're just a, a dog. You're just a piece of meat. You're just a whatever. And if you don't have pleasure in this life, then life isn't worth living, right? And so we rightly don't want to have anything to do with that decadent, perverse, materialistic hedonism. So we grab the steering wheel, jerk it hard, jump over the road, land in the other ditch. And so we overreact and we overcorrect and we land in another ditch over here. And the devil delights to drive us from one ditch to the other and back and forth and back and forth so that no matter what's going on, we're still in a ditch. We're still living apart from what God actually has told us and the reality God has made. All right, so think about, I think we're in the same kind of danger here. We're in danger of seeing how flippant the world is about suffering. 
The world is flippant about suffering. The world hates any kind of pain. So we see how the world says, if you're in pain, medicate yourself, right? Or kill yourself. That's what, you know, that's what suicide is, and now physician-assisted suicide. There was a woman, a young woman, like 18 or 19 year, years old, in what country was this? Anyone remember? Just recently, who, in Norway, who, who committed um, physician-assisted, state-sanctioned, probably funded suicide, because why? Anyone know? She was depressed. That's where, that's where this goes. You're depressed, well, that you can't live like that, just kill yourself. Because it's better to not exist, because that's what they think happens when you die, you just cease existing. So it's better not to exist than to exist with that. To exist with any kind of pain, whether it's psychological or physical, just end it. Then you won't be in suffering anymore. So we see that, we see how our world hates any kind of pain, and we rightly say no. No, God uses suffering for our good. You with me? We want to reject that idea that all suffering is bad. The suffering is bad in and of itself. It's bad. We we shouldn't have anything. We should get away from that as fast as we can. No, God uses suffering for our good. And so then, here's the oversteering, right? We grab the wheel, jerk it over here, get away from that as far as we can, and we begin to think, having jumped into the other ditch, that the more miserable we are, the more godly we are. (laughs) Okay. No, we reject the rejection of pain. And then we become the king of pain, you know? We think it's either or. Either we embrace suffering or we have joy. It's one or the other, it can't be both. Either we embrace suffering or we have joy, but it cannot be both. We're not like the world, we understand suffering, we know that suffering is good. If you live with joy, you're downplaying the goodness of suffering, you're a Pollyanna, what's wrong with you? So how does a believer find joy in the midst of trials, suffering and pain? Notice, not how does a believer find joy instead of trials, suffering and pain. That's not the question, it's not either or. How does a believer find joy in the middle of trial, suffering, and pain? Okay, that's the question. And I think we need it. And it's a good question. So let's start with some basic truths here. Real quick, because I'm gonna spend some time in some long passages at the end and I wanna get there. How does a believer find joy in the midst of trial, suffering, and pain? A few things, number one, God commands us, number one, to rejoice. All right, so I wanna, I wanna get into our minds this truth, the fact that rejoicing in joy is not an option. If you're not rejoicing, you're disobeying God, All right? Rejoice in the Lord always, again I will say rejoice. That covers it, always. Rejoice in the Lord always. And we could list a bunch of passages here and more, these are just some examples, and I'm not gonna read them for time's sake. But this is everywhere. First Thessalonians 5, uh, 16 says what? Rejoice always. <laughs> okay, this is a command that's over and over and over again. It's a command to, to have joy and to rejoice 
uh, in the middle of, not, not after, but in the middle of your life and all the pain that comes with it. So number one, God commands us to rejoice. Number two, God commands us to rejoice in the middle of suffering. Matthew 5, Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Anyone ever had that happen to you? Every one of you should raise your hands because people do it all the time. People do it all the time about you because you're a member of this church. No, absolutely. And how are we, do, how are we supposed to re- respond to that, right? Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, say, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Well, rejoice and be glad. Not get depressed and despairing and have a pity party and circle the wagons and hide under a rock somewhere, but rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you see this? Persecution, insult, relational suffering, all that kind of stuff happens, and our response to that is to rejoice, right? First Peter 4, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. This isn't weird, this is normal. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. What's the math of that? To the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So as the suffering increases, the degree of suffering increases, what is to happen? The degree of joy is to increase. They're directly connected. At least they're supposed to be. If you're thinking right. A little bit of suffering gets a little bit of joy. You know, medium suffering, medium joy. Big suffering, big joy. That's what he says. James 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. This is, this is the catch-all, all right? This isn't persecution necessarily, includes persecution, but it's anything. Various trials, trials of all sorts. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Not when you are delivered from the trial. Not when the trial's all gone and it's all over now and now you can have joy. But when you encounter it, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So God commands us to rejoice in the middle of suffering. Not after, but in the middle of it. Even at the outset of it. Not only does he command us to rejoice, doesn't he command joy, he promises joy to his people. One of many, 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 many examples, right? Uh, from the Old Testament, Isaiah 35. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. 
Isn't that beautiful? Think about that. That's a promise. Everlasting joy on your head. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. The whole Bible's full of these, that kind of thing. And Jesus, lastly here, Jesus came to bring joy to his people. So he, he commands it. He commands it in the midst of suffering. He promises it. And this is why Jesus came. These things I have spoken to you so that you may have, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. He came to comfort the afflicted, to comfort the oppressed, to raise them up. And he has come that our joy may be full. All right, now think about this. God commands us to rejoice. He commands us to rejoice in the middle of our suffering and even to rejoice because of our suffering. That's what Jesus said. That's what Peter said. That's what James said. They all say, don't just rejoice some, in some kind of weird dichotomy where you just figure out how to do it, but it doesn't make sense. He says, do it because of the suffering. Because of the suffering, not in spite of it, but because of it. When they persecute you, rejoice and be exceeding glad. When, to the extent that you share the sufferings of Christ, be filled with joy. Consider it all joy when you, count and, you know, face various trials. This isn't in spite of, it's because of. Do you see that? It is what he says. They say, not just one. And our Lord Jesus uh, promises to give us joy, God promises, and Lord Jesus came to give us joy. All right, that's what the Bible says about this. Now, think about this, here's our problem. We think that suffering and joy are mutually exclusive. Okay, we think you can have either suffering or joy, but not both at the same time. So we, we, there's this verse in the, in the Psalms, and we think this verse kind of sets the, the, the pattern for how suffering and joy interact with each other, right? The verse is Psalm 30, verse five. Weeping may last for the night, but what? Shout of joy comes in the morning. Right, and so that's, that's the paradigm. Suffering and then joy, right? Weeping may last for the night, but then the joy comes in the morning, the weeping's gone. And when you're weeping, you don't have joy, and when you have joy, you don't have weeping. It's one, then the other. It's this lineal thing, linear thing. One, then the other, not both at the same time. That, how, can, how can that happen? And so here's, we get, here's where we get stuck. All right, we don't wanna be superficial and shallow about suffering and pain, so we embrace it, rejecting what the world, how the world thinks about suffering. The world hates it because there's, no, there's nothing to it. There is no design, there is no purpose, there is no kind intention to our suffering. That's how the world thinks, so we reject it altogether. No, 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 we don't do that, we embrace it. We embrace suffering, we realize it's good, but we don't pursue joy, all right? We don't pursue joy. And in not pursuing joy, we're not being godly, 
It feels godly not to pursue joy because we think that godliness is hard, right? That godliness is harsh. Because look at the world. They're soft. Do you understand what I'm saying? If the world is glib and superficial and shallow, we think, yeah, that's joy. Joy is glib, superficial, and shallow. But it's not. And you, you, can't, be, you can't be godly if you're not pursuing joy. It's a command. And not instead of suffering, but in the middle of suffering. All right, so here are some passages I want to spend the rest of our time just looking at these. There's a few short ones and there's a couple of long ones. And they're just amazing. Um, These are passages that are helping me to be joyful in the midst of pain. And I hope uh, that they'll help you too. Think about this one. 1 Thessalonians 1.6. Just look at the example of this. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you see that? They're together. These are the Thessalonians. They, they've, they, the Apostle Paul preached to them. The result of their believing was persecution and tribulation. But with the persecution and tribulation, you receive the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, not Those things aren't at odds with each other. This is exactly just, they're doing what Jesus said. When you have tribulation, because of your faith, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, right? When you have all kinds of trials, James says, count it all joy. That's what what they're doing, they're just living it out. They're just actually doing what we're commanded to do. Look at this one, 2 Corinthians. We're gonna come back and look at a few passages here in 2 Corinthians. I'm gonna read a long one at the end here. It's all over 2 Corinthians. This is 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us after all our affliction. who comforts us by taking all our affliction away. No, who comforts us in all our affliction. You see? In it. Comfort and affliction together at the same time. He comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. It's exactly what Jesus said. It's exactly what Peter said. To the, to the extent that you have sufferings, right? So how much, how much suffering did the Apostle Paul had and his companions? What does he say? Abundant. More than enough. Mm-hmm baskets full of, of suffering. 
And so what does he get? From the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, he gets abundant comfort. Is that natural? No. You understand? That ain't natural. That takes an act of God. He is the one comforting. It's through Christ. Look at this one later on, chapter 7. The Apostle Paul says, I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy. What? In all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. Not in spite of all our affliction, not after all our affliction, but in it. They go together. What does that mean? So he says, for, for even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without, fears within. Can you relate to that? No one's trying to beat you. No one's trying to kill you with, with rocks. I know. None of you have been shipwrecked, I don't think. <laughs> right? But, you know, conflict without. And then what goes with that? Fears within. Conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, but God who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. This gives you a little picture into the, how God often does this. It's, by, it's with people, right? It's not as you sit in your corner, it's in contact with people. God uses people to bring us comfort in the middle of suffering. We all, have, we all know this. And look at that line, God who comforts the depressed. God comforts the depressed. You ever been depressed? Yeah. God comforts the depressed. And oftentimes he does it by people. In his case, Titus. Isn't that sweet? We'll come back to that, to 2 Corinthians here in a minute. Look at this. There's a way of thinking. We've already touched on it a little bit. Um, when Jesus says, when they're persecuting you, rejoice and be exceeding glad, there's a reason. What is the reason? Because that's how they treated the prophets. 
So this is a good sign. If you're being persecuted and they're, and they're lying about you, and they're saying all kinds of false things about you, for his sake, then that's a good sign for you because that means you're on to something here, right? Because that's how they treated the prophets, okay? Um, count a little joy when you face various trials, James. Why? Because you know that your faith, that your suffering, your, your pain, in God's hand produces endurance and faith. So there's, there's a reasoning you have to reason. You have to read those things and say, oh yeah, I've got I've to do the equation in my head. I've got I've to work this out. I've got to remember certain things. Does that make sense? I have to remember these things. If I'm not thinking right about this, then of course I'm going to go into despair and, and pity party and blame shifting and bitterness. All right? But if I'm thinking right, then I can turn that into joy with the help of God and God's people. Well, here's another thing to think about. This is from Hebrews chapter 12. All right, just listen to this, and I think you'll see the point. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, my son. This is from the book of Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So think about it. Here's some logic you have to work through in your mind. I'm experiencing suffering and hardship. That must mean God's rejected me. Right? That's what we all want to think. I'm experiencing hardship, trouble, trial, suffering, whatever. That means God's rejected me. But what does he say? Sorry, I didn't. He scourges every son whom he receives. He disciplines every son that he loves. Then he says this, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The suffering, the trial, the hardship is proof that you're a son of God. It's not evidence that you're not. Do you see that? Furthermore, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the, the testing of your faith produces endurance. This is the same kind of thing you have to do. 
to realize this. And there's a point to this. And the point is not arbitrary or random. It's in the hands of a father who loves you. He's doing this on purpose. He knows what we need. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths through your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Rejoice. Strengthen yourself. One more passage. And we might be done kind of on time. We'll see. This is a long passage. It covers several chapters. <laughs> it covers the whole chapter five. But just follow along and just take this passage home and chew on it. This is really amazing. As we see the Apostle Paul talking about his life. Um, the Apostle Paul, when he thinks about his suffering, he's not thinking about it just in terms of himself and his private little world. He's thinking about the kingdom of God and the mission of God and the glory of God. And if you don't put your, con your suffering in that context, you will lose heart. Okay? Look what he says. But we have this treasure... The treasure that he says right before is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, right? Weak bodies. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. This is a des design feature, not a flaw. This is the point. This is the, so that God is, is revealed to be the powerful one. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. He's always thinking about the kingdom of God and the, and the, and the people that he's serving. He's not having a pity party. He goes on. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction would anyone call Paul's affliction momentary and light? There's a whole list of it later somewhere in 2 Corinthians. You know, beaten, how many times? Stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked, starving, wandering around, homeless, nothing to wear. For, compare your suffering, to, not, not to, lighten, to make, our, make light of our suffering, it's real. But this is what he could say, right? 
for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. There's a lot in there. Keep reading. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have this as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. We're going to die, and we're going to be in his presence. Therefore, we want, we want to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may have may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are being made or made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Uh, We could spend weeks on that. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Can you have a pity party and bitter when you're thinking like this? I don't think so. Therefore, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled to us through, to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the, wor- the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain for he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God. Watch this. Look at what he says. In much endurance, in afflictions, 
in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor. The kingdom of God is advanced. This is what he's saying. Through my suffering in the midst of all this stuff, by both glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, the kingdom of God is advanced by evil report, by slander. Regarded as deceivers, and yet true, as unknown, yet well known, as dying, yet behold, we live, as punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, yet what? Always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. How do you, how do you, how do you live like that? You get something bigger in your mind than your comfort, than your temporal right now comfort, than the lack of suffering, lack of pain, but you don't get crusty and start thinking, yeah, pain is good, right? As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. How do you get that? By the Holy Spirit? through Christ, by thinking the right, you know, having these words in your mind. You don't have to be being persecuted to think this way. Our sufferings are all sorts. Right? Get out of yourself. God advances his kingdom through your suffering. Time to be done. I hear the pitter-patter. Okay. Well, let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this, these words. Thank you for the promises of comfort and... Um, and joy even and rejoicing. I pray that you would comfort the depressed. This is who you are, this is what you do. I pray that you would give us uh, eyes to see all these things that are true so that we can actually live this way. I pray that when we are slandered as a church or as families or individuals, when people say all kinds of lies about us, I pray that we would not grow bitter and despairing and cynical, but instead we would grow joyful. Let them see that. And I pray that your kingdom would grow because of it. Lord, we thank you for this class that we've had. We thank you for the, the good questions. We thank you for all the, the answers that we find in your word for every question we have. Thank you, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.